Hi, welcome to Coach Beard's Book Club. I'm Michaela, Coach Beard's assistant. Together with Andrea, Bex and Marita, we'll be diving into the books mentioned or seen in the Apple TV series Ted Lasso. If you love Ted Lasso as much as Danny loves giving away joy for free, then join this group of four women handpicked by Beard himself and let's go! Welcome back, Greyhounds. I hope everybody is well. Um, I'm so excited that we're going to be discussing Hamilton this week, which I have seen once. How many times have you all seen it? Marita? Uh, I've probably seen it on Disney Plus a couple times, but well before that came out, I had the soundtrack on Endless Loop um, on my phone. So impressive. Impressive. I've heard it many times. Brilliant. Begs? Um, I've seen it twice on Disney Plus. The first time my captions weren't working and that was a struggle. Yeah. So the second time watching it with captions helps. Also, um, I'm going to like not really shame, but semi shame myself here. I live in New York City and have never seen it on Broadway. <laughs> I just don't live that life. It's too expensive. It's, it's fairly expensive. That's We'll let you off for that one. Andrea, what about you? Um, I have seen it more times than I would care to admit in front of other people so i also no i also got the soundtrack listened to it endlessly forever i saw it once in new york and then i saw it um probably uh 15 16 times in chicago in fact got twice got the free tickets in I'm chicago so impressed. i am and, so yeah. impressed yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, obsessed. Wow. I'm obsessed sorry I love it. <laughs> no no never apologize for being obsessed we have a whole podcast about books on a tv show you're fine you're doing fine and not only do we have our usual suspects we also have guests this time i'm so Woo-hoo! happy to um introduce brett and marissa from richmond till we die Yay. welcome okay, welcome thank, thank you so, so much excited. for inviting us on the show and how many times have you all seen hamilton we saw it once in chicago and just like many of you, Brett listened to it endlessly before that. And then we've watched it several times on Disney+. Plus. Yes, we nice. have two young girls and they are the personality types where when they, as am I, where when they get a little bit interested in something, they tend to obsess about it for a while. And then they move on to the next thing. So there was a period there where Hamilton was on repeat on Disney+, Plus for about three weeks. So, Yeah. I love that. I think I'd go on very well with your children. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also a chronic rewatcher. So, Bex, you have a summary of Hamilton for us, and you're going to let us know why we're discussing it today on this Ted Lasso book podcast. Absolutely. So, I got a lot of my information from the most important source out there, Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but Hamilton tells the story of Alexander Hamilton's life and the influence of various historical figures on it in a two-act musical. The music's lyrics and book are by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and the story is based on the 2004 book Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. It is what is known as a sung-through, or rather wrapped-through, musical. It took Miranda seven years, from 2008 to 2015, to compose it in its entirety. The show draws from hip-hop, R&B, pop, soul, and traditional-style show tunes. It casts non-white actors as the founding fathers of the United States. Hamilton premiered off-Broadway on February 17, 2015, at the Public Theater in New York City, with Miranda in the lead role. The show lasted several months at the public and was entirely sold out. 
After winning a number of Drama Desk Awards, including Outstanding Musical, it was then moved to the Richard Rogers Theater on Broadway. It opened on Broadway on August 6, 2015. Hamilton received 16 nominations during the 2016 Tony Awards and won 11 of them, including Best Musical. A film version of the original Broadway production was released in 2020 on Disney+. All right, so why are we talking about this? Because for me, I was like, wait, where does this come up? And I <laughs> searched it. I was like, this is this is a deep cut, I think. Or, you know, it's maybe not for those of you who have seen it multiple times. <laughs> but for me, I was like, what? Okay. So wait a minute, I'm going to guess that Andrea found us then, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> it went on my list immediately. <laughs> laser eyes and laser, laser ears for finding things. I love it. Yes, absolutely. So this is referenced in season two, episode one, Goodbye Earl, when Ted and Beard are sitting down in the Crown and Anchor having dinner after Earl had died, and May gives them each a beer. Ted asks, hey, coach, can I get real a second? Forget my meal a second? And Beard responds, put down your beer and tell your buddy how you feel a second. And then Ted talks about how bringing an, in an outsider to help Danny puts a knot in his belly, and Beard suggests it might be jealousy. So this is a for People like me who didn't pick up on it immediately. Uh, it's a play on the lyrics from Right Hand Man from Hamilton, where Washington raps, check it. Can I be real a second just for a millisecond? Let down my guard and tell the people how I feel a second. Wow. I don't rap. You got what you got. Bars. <laughs> yeah. Bex does not have bars. <laughs> <laughs> so. My thoughts and my question to you all, and Andrea or Michaela's already asked you and confirmed this, but did all of you catch this when watching it or like did others miss it? <laughs> no, like immediately. Yeah. Yeah, I picked it. I've I've heard that line so many times. I've heard that song so many times. Yeah, because it is a lyric in the show where like everything kind of drops out and it's like you only have like this sort of bass synth that's like bop bop and it's like just Chris's amazing, wonderful voice, which we all love, so silky smooth, smooth and gorgeous. Like, yes. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's where it's one of the first times we hear Washington really start getting into like more of a rap. Um, which, if, if it's okay if I jump in here, like I was nerding out about this earlier. Um, Lin Manuel, when he was interviewed about the show, talked about, and he's written about too, and like the Hamilton, as they call it, the big giant book that looks like a piece of reference literature, but it's not. He was talking about how he wrote Washington specifically, like he mostly sings, but whenever he's feeling frustrated or kind of like confused or like trying to figure something out, like he sort of starts rapping and his verse will get like closer to get like his rhymes will get closer and internal and things like that. And so it's just this really interesting moment where we're seeing Washington's frustration, like mirrored with Ted's frustration with what's happening. And so I just thought that was a really cool parallel there. I love that. Thanks. Me too. That is impressive. Yeah, I would not have. I think even if I had seen it, which I hadn't, even if I'd seen it, I still probably wouldn't have picked up on that. So we, I think we had to go backward and, and actually like rewind the episode because as soon as it started, we started laughing and nerding out about, oh my gosh, Hamilton, yes. like in Ted Lasso, like worlds combining. I was waiting. Obsessions combining. Yeah. So we had to go back and like rewatch it, rewatch that little bit. I appreciate that. I love a good rewind. Like, wait a minute. Shoot. <laughs> yeah, we're not afraid to just like, hey, we missed that. We laughed over that line. Go back. Even with our captions on still. <laughs> 
Yeah. That's what's good about being able to do that, right? Nowadays, because I remember when you had, even if you missed an episode, you were waiting a year to see it again. So now we are, oh, we're in such a good place for that. So lucky. Blessed times. Look around, look around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, that's it. Like, I found this scene, like, when I was trying to figure out, like, okay, where is this from? You know, I just Googled it and I found the answer. But then I was like, I want to hear how that scene plays out again. Like, I vaguely remember the scene, but let me, like, listen to Ted and Beard say this again. And then let me compare it to how Washington does it. <laughs> yeah, I was really impressed. They, like, wrote the line in such a way that they really tried to stay true to the actual rhyme scheme. Like, I, appreci- I appreciated that. Yeah, they got it. They got it mm-hmm. right. Wow, so impressive. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to hearing from everybody. Bex, you're going to start us off today. Yes. um, I'm actually going to talk about color conscious casting. And I want to talk about two different forms of color conscious casting. One that's used in Hamilton and one that's used in Ted Lasso. And why they each work for the story that's trying to be told. So... Color conscious casting is a form of casting that acknowledges race, including the injustice and discrimination that often goes along with it, and can even be used to reimagine a performance or show, as opposed to colorblind casting, which is the practice of casting without considering the actor's ethnicity or race. I think that both Hamilton and Ted Lasso casts are color conscious casts. But again, two very different approaches to this color conscious casting. So let's talk about Hamilton first, and then I'll I'll go into Ted Lasso. So Miranda intentionally cast black and brown actors in roles that represent historically white individuals. Hamilton immigrated from the Caribbean, so why not make him Puerto Rican, right? <laughs> um, and enslaved Africans were part of this stage of American history, so why not reimagine the roles of the founding fathers from that perspective? Some might argue that it erases the realities of the role of black and brown bodies at that time, and there's definitely some truth to that, but it also encourages a conversation about why. Why was it okay that only white male voices were part of this conversation? Why do so many other versions of history erase black and brown bodies? That sort of thing, right? It also raises the issue that the founding fathers were nowhere near as progressive as they might come across in the show. It's not perfect historically, and we all know there are some inaccuracies for the story's sake. you got to make the story flow. Uh, but it does provide an alternative means of accessing that history. So according to Miranda, the portrayal of these historical figures by Black, Latino, and Asian actors should not require a suspension of disbelief. He says, Our cast looks like America looks now, and that's certainly intentional. It's a way of pulling you into the story and allowing you to leave whatever cultural baggage you have about the founding fathers at the door. He added, we're telling the story of old dead white men, but we're using actors of color, and that makes the story more immediate and more accessible to a contemporary audience. Miranda references Hamilton's immigrant status throughout the musical to reinforce that immigrants come in all shapes, sizes, and especially colors. If Hamilton was an immigrant who, quote unquote, got the job done, then how far off is it from immigrants in the U.S. today? So that's sort of my take on the color conscious casting here, right? It's it's that intentional flipping, even though it doesn't match historically, it's not historically accurate. It's very much intentional. I don't know. Thoughts on that from everyone before I move on to Ted Lasso? Just, I completely agree. I mean, I think it was really interesting how, um, yeah, like, so telling the story of America through the the different people that make up America is so fascinating. And I think, right, like I think even when you look at the actual 
historical, right? Like you said, like these are historically white people. There was tons of people of color around, around all of them, right? But their story isn't being told. And, and there probably was influence there that no one is aware of except for the people that were there at the time and they'll never admit it, right? Like that's just something like when you're talking about history like that, like there's so many things, like I even remember like it blew my mind, but I was reading about like the first person that went to Antarctica. It was actually a slave because they sent him out first just to make sure he wouldn't like, right? Like sent him out, like you, you know, you go risk your life first. And if you're okay, then I'll follow. Right. But like that person's never going to get the, you know what I mean? Like that kind of accolades. Yeah. I learned something new right now. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. So that it's fascinating to me that he took this, this aspect of it. And like, even though we never know, I do think there's something there to it. I'm a, a music theater director at a college, and so um, I just attended a conference in January in New York, and it was all centered around diversity in musical theater. And one of the things that came up quite a bit was this idea of color conscious casting, and also just kind of the expectations that are set behind that, even vocally. So if you look at you know hip hop being the style that's kind of prevalent, obviously in in Hamilton, um, and sort of how even just we expect people of color to sing certain styles in musical theater, and also that I think you know. Miranda really set up a precedent that we could sort of change even older musicals in a way to to bring light or to make them more relevant. For instance, uh, 1776 revival on Broadway now with all women and non-binary um, actors and actresses. Is it some like it hot was also done? Was that the one that they recently did as like with a an all black cast? Maybe it wasn't that. There was one that like was originally done with a white cast that that um, one of my other podcast hosts on a different podcast, uh, she went to see specifically because they cast an all black cast to to do these roles. And it was one of those where there were probably like there was probably that one black character that was the token character. And and just she was really excited about how they like flipped the script on that that role. So I love that. Also, if you come to New York again, don't you dare not let me know. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, yeah, we have a reason to hang out now. I love that. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think that uh, Broadway is changing, you know, and a lot of that is because of uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and sort of how he's taken and, and expanded the musical theater canon. And so I think, um, you know, shows are opening up to to changing and, and showing off some more diversity, whether it's people of color or women in certain roles. And um, I'm excited. Yeah, and I think one of the other things that it does is like any time that you sort of change the notions of inclusivity or what that looks like, there's always speed bumps. Like Hamilton, it was such a revelation because it was like, this hasn't really been done. And then, of course, it created so much discourse that, of course, folks were going to find like little nitpicks here and there like this, you know, this wasn't exactly right or this wasn't done well. And I'm not saying those are discounted at all, because I think a lot of the those critiques are genuinely valid, uh, like the ones that you brought up, Bex. But also it's one of those things where as we as we do this more and more, we get better at it. But like some folks really have to be the first ones to kind of step out there and and sort of change minds. And I think for for a first kind of major foray into like, what does this look like? Uh, Hamilton was really successful in that. And it, it really did for, for me and a lot of folks 
kind of started that conversation and started thinking about what does color conscious mean and what should that look like kind of going forward, mm -hmm. as opposed to the very prevalent at the time colorblind casting, which as you pointed out, yes. is very different and has different. Yeah. Views. Absolutely. Absolutely. So like that brings me to Ted Lasso, then like, how do we see color conscious casting in Ted Lasso? Because it's certainly not the same. There's plenty of white characters. And there's some issues I have within that that hierarchy uh, of Richmond as well regarding that. But my question is, how does Ted Lasso engage in color conscious casting, even if they're not intentionally taking BIPOC actors and casting them in all roles? Because, you know, again, to be fair, the only non-player uh, who wasn't white and is now coded as a villain, even even if it's temporary. We're all here saying that and Nate will be, be redeemed. We're on team redemption for Nate, right? Yeah, basically that. The whole, like, of all the non-players, everyone was white except for Nate. Yep. And, and now he's the bad guy. Like, that's a little, a little iffy, right? You know, we have Edwin Akufo who shows up for like an episode or two, but he's kind of a joke. Yes. Like his character. At first you think it's going to be like, okay, this is good. Like you still don't trust him because he's a billionaire. And so instantly you say you're a billionaire and I don't trust you. <laughs> I don't care how like benevolent you're trying to make yourself seem, but he comes off as a, as a joke at the end. Right. Um, yeah. He was just collecting, you know, it was nothing mm -hmm. to do with supporting, it was all about collecting for him. So, yeah, I can see. Yeah, can... I, I think it's definitely worth considering more in depth in like another episode. <laughs> but I'm done. hopefully we'll we'll come across another book where I'll be like, all right, let's talk about Edwin Akufa. <laughs> I want to look more specifically at the players and the casting of the players and how some of that could be considered color conscious casting. Uh, so my position is that the color conscious casting of Ted Lasso could have easily been colorblind casting right it could have easily fallen into that that trope but what jason and the other writers did after casting the actors was allow them to bring some of themselves into the characters which made them read as more authentic and realistic so i've got a couple examples first one is danny rojas right uh the character of danny according to an interview with cristo fernandez was originally supposed to be from Iceland and his name was supposed to be Gunnar. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but um, so when they cast Christo, they didn't decide to make his character Spanish, which would have been easy because geographically it's close or even Italian, which they could have gotten away with. We all know a lot of times they'll like casting directors will just oh, interchange yeah. those two. Right. But they, they actually allowed Christo to build his character off of his own Mexican identity, right? His, his, he was able to bring that element to it. And I think a fantastic scene that represents this, this sort of color consciousness is that scene in the Christmas episode when Higgins is like, you know, all your family's back in and he names the cities where all of the actors are actually from, I right? Where their that. families are from. Such a good, it, it's such a good scene. It's such, a, you can actually see the joy on everybody's faces as well. It's just, I love it. Yeah. And the other character, of course, is my my precious, my love, Sam Obisanya. I wonder who I was going to say. I wonder who you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, I was baffled. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Obisanya was named in honor of the friend of the writing staff and season two guest star, Sam Richardson, right, who played Edwin Akufu. So Obisanya's character was originally written as Ghanaian. 
But Tahib Jamo is Nigerian. So when he was asked to include a Ghanaian term in his audition, he actually switched to his own Nigerian dialect. And so Tahib has said uh, about this, I changed Sam's nationality. I changed the dialogue, spoke a bit of Yoruba. It was a bit of a risk, but I thought I could better serve this project if it was something I felt completely tied to. And that's kind of become the through line with Sam. Being Nigerian is such a big part of who he is. You know, high risk, high reward. And now we're here. So (laughs) you saw my face like I had no idea. That is such good research. I cannot believe I have not heard that. That's amazing. Yeah, I thought that was so cool. And we got the the, the Jolo rice thing. You know, Um, we now get that whole uh, what's better, the Nigerian or the Ghanaian Jolo rice. So that's obviously something else and a joke that's came out of that. And I really I think that's great. Yeah, they wouldn't have been able to write that into the script if they had brought Sam Richardson in as a a Ghanaian character and and another Ghanaian character, right? So some of that script writing comes after the casting and after, like, seeing who these actors, what these actors can bring to their characters, right? I think that's, that's key. You know, I think the scene with Danny in the shower after Earl dies the whole like praying and crossing himself not going to happen with an Icelandic character. It's not that, that connection to it. And even just his prayer in Spanish is just like, it adds this extra layer because no one else knows what he's saying. (laughs) I don't know if you're going to bring this up, just cut me off and I'll edit it out. But, um, are you talking about the feet fingers? Are you going to be bringing up the feet fingers? Thing oh with, no! Right. Talk about the feet fingers because, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm just regurgitating this. I did not know this, but um, apparently, when Ted makes his joke about the um, feet fingers being your toes, and and sort of, I don't know if it's just all Spanish or or just Danny's dialect, but mm-hmm. the literal word for toes is feet fingers. So that that wouldn't mm-hmm. really have been a joke for Danny. That would have just been yeah. Like, no, yeah. he got it. And you can see it in the scene where everyone is looking confused except Danny. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, fingers of the feet. Like, literally, it's dedos de pie. <laughs> fingers of foot. Makes so much so, sense. That makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah. And and to me, like, interestingly, the characters who... The only characters in the show who put on accents are actually white characters. Right? Like, Phil Dunster is not from Manchester. That's not no. his natural accent. No. So he he adds into that. And Billy Harris is not Welsh, which was, you know, kind of funny to hear when he when I first heard him in an interview. I wasn't aware, you know, like and and I know that there's controversy on like where Healy's character is from. No, there's no controversy. She's not northern. There's just absolutely <laughs> no way Keely is northern. I, I, I would put an East London on that, but I wouldn't quote me on the East London part. But she's definitely mm-hmm. she's one hundred percent not northern, not northern at okay. all. Okay, I'm listen. I'm gonna trust you because you have a much better awareness of this. I'm but further I north, so <laughs> I, you know, I did hear some of that, but obviously, whatever accent she uses in the show is different from her natural accent, even if people are like incorrect about geographically where it's located so these are the characters putting on accents these are the characters who like traditionally and if you have a character of color a lot of times like oh won't you sound more indian or sound more latino or like what does that mean oh i know what it means it means you want me to put on an accent that's fake and false right so um there's none of that in this show through the the characters of color 
That reminds me of um, an episode of Bones where the character of Aristu, who is was written as Persian, and um, there's a small part where he keeps he keeps an accent. There's a, a story behind it as to why he does it, but he actually has an American accent. He just keeps the accent because he can't be bothered explaining to the white folks why he doesn't have an accent. So, but anyway, <laughs> the accent that he does use is actually Jordanian. So, like people watching it. It's almost like people who were watching Aladdin back in the day when the writing in the background didn't mean bugger all. It was it wasn't Arabic. It was just gib- like gibberish. So like if you you know if you're speaking to a certain audience, it's it's like cl- quite clear who you're writing for if you don't put that sort of research in, and it's just the white folk, you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, I thoroughly agree with everything you're saying. Yeah. So I was just curious if anybody had any other thoughts on like the co- the casting choices and such in terms of uh, color consciousness with Ted Lasso, because there is a, a pretty heavy white cast still, but uh, there there is um, at, with the diversity, there is intentionality behind it, I think. So can you imagine having a like anybody? I mean, I don't even know that much about football. Marita, you'll probably speak to this better than me. Could you imagine if you'd cast all white players? It's just not believable. There is no team <laughs> no, in Britain on the uh, planet that has Argentina. Uh, very, I'm very upset. Argentina was the only uh, national team that was all one color. Wow, crazy, and, right? Yeah, very upsetting. So I will say we did in just this. Uh, we are recording this just after uh, season three, episode two, and we did just get another uh, non-white character introduced who is not a player because Umbrian Razia playing Shandy. So we'll see how big a, a a character that turns out to be. But I think they're shaping her up to be a, a someone who shows up pretty repeatedly in the season. I would be my guess. Um, yeah, I think she's going to, hopefully Keely's going to do for her what Rebecca did for Keely, right? That's what we're hoping for in that situation. I love Shandy. She's so much fun. <laughs> she's she's got a good collection of snow globes. <laughs> no, that's Babs. No, that's Barbara. Oh, that's Babs. That's Babs. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't call her Babs, to be fair. Yeah, she didn't want to be called Babs, did she? Which her name's Barbara. Oh, that's true. Barbara. No, you're right. You're right. Um, that's her friend the, the that model. she knew from yes, her modeling yeah. days. And she's one of those like she's any ASMR fans like dream with all of her popping of her gum and her yep. you know candy and all, all it drives me crazy. But it's hilarious. It's a perfect, you know, character choice for her. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. Not a, not a big fan of the ASMR stuff. <laughs> the clickety-clack nails and all of that. So, I mean, that's really it. I mean, unless anyone has any other characters that they, they want to mention. I, I love that. Shandy bringing Shandy in and hopefully having her be a bigger part of it. Well done. No, nothing else to add. It was good. Thank you. I think you're bang on there, though. It's It's really... And again, as um, Brett and Marissa were saying, hopefully this is just the lopping off point for other shows to do the exact same thing and even get better at it and even, like you say, have... Because, yeah, there is some discussions about how the upper management is all white and, you know, that is an issue. So maybe in the next show, we're going to build on it and build on it until things just get better and better. So, yeah, I fully support everything you said there. Yeah, and actually one thing I just wanted to add, it's not about the... um... It's more actually about the the diversity in um, gender, right? So like the fact that there are so many women writers in the room, right? And like the the way that the women characters are portrayed is I think one of the things that's so magical about Ted Lasso. So that's also an interesting thing. And I feel like Hamilton also did a great job of like 
I mean, you know, the women in, in, in Hamilton were clearly like, how do I say this? Like their main thing was about getting married, right? Like they were these kind of wealthy daughters of, you know, and and like their thing was about getting married, but they gave them so much more like depth and like, right. It's that same kind of thing. Like they gave them a bigger story, even though their mm-hmm. story really should have just been, you know, not should have, but you know what I'm saying? I like when Angelica really had to marry for money because of the state her family and she's acknowledged that's something that she didn't want to do. She rather would have married for attraction and love and and the song about I want a man with a really good mind, paraphrasing again, because I will listen to the soundtrack over and over again, but I've not done it yet. But yeah, I agree. I think that's that's a really good point. I think too, in our last rewatch of Hamilton, one of the things I noticed was, uh, well, yes, of course, like the the principal women have a lot of power and powerful minds. And we see sort of, you know, I mean, it's called Hamilton. Everyone assumes it's about Alexander Hamilton. But if you watch to the end, it's really about Eliza as the hero. Let's just be real. But in the cabinet meetings where they have, you know, the the rap battles, one of the things that I I had never really thought or noticed or took part, like, you know, really focused on was having the women, there were women in the cabinet, in the ensemble who were sitting in those chairs and then in those seats of power. And I thought, that's really cool because we still have all these principal men representing the founding fathers, but hey, I see women in the cabinet and that's really exciting. That's a good point. Yeah, it is. And I, I don't know if, the, if it was just a, a decision for movement, or but a lot of the um, ensemble women had the corset tops on, but had pa- what, what Americans call pants. That's what we call underwear. <laughs> but trousers on, you know, and I don't know if that in itself was a bit of a statement as well. I think so. I had to clarify that because I didn't want the British listeners just thinking if they hadn't seen Hamilton that all these women were just nothing about in their underwear on stage. No, that's not what I meant. I meant trousers. <laughs> Which wouldn't be that out of place in a lot of Broadway theaters. No, it really wouldn't. wouldn't. And it shouldn't be either. So. <laughs> okay, fantastic, Beck. So we are now moving on to Marita. I'm excited to hear what you've got to say. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about a few different things. Uh, one, I think it's really interesting that we're following this on uh, our recent episode on Johnny Tremaine, because there are a lot that this has in common with that sort of founder chic aesthetic. With Johnny Tremaine, we talk about he starts off as an orphan, and that's kind of fundamental to a lot of how American stories are told, particularly in the time of the revolution, because it was like breaking off from our mother country. I, I think that's that's an interesting kind of comparison between sort of Johnny Tremaine and and Hamilton, and it runs in a line through Ted Lasso because Ted Lasso has so much fatherlessness and at least, you know, losing fathers, bad fathers. There's a lot of that going on. Um, But one of the really big comparisons that I saw between Hamilton and Ted Lasso is both of them have a really wide range of intertextuality, um, references to other sources in a way that sort of adds depth to the show or to the to the musical call outs to other things we can call them easter eggs little things that are hidden in there where you hear them and you understand immediately what it's a reference to and as much as we think of hamilton as a hip-hop musical and it very much is there's references from everything from the classics through musicals in history as well as as hip-hop in there so among other things hamilton references past musicals um it references south pacific uh with uh, the line in my shot that you've got to be carefully taught 
Right. It references Pirates of Penzance with I am the very model of a modern major general, which shows up in Right Hand Man. Uh, Even the musical 1776, which we talked about just briefly before, has a song called Sit Down John, which shows up as a line in Adam's administration. So there's a lot of uh, references to past musical theater in there. We get those in Ted Lasso, too. Right. Oklahoma is Ted and Michelle's sort of word that forces honesty and the root of why Ted can't hear songs from that particular musical without sort of panicking a little bit. Uh, we get it from Nate too, right? He describes being liked by someone like Keely as wonderful, which is a Gershwin reference. And just recently he goes, he does the getting to know you. Well, bit. exactly. Yes. <laughs> I was getting course. there. He devolves into quoting from the King and I, as that panic sets in in a press conference, there's also a West side story reference. So both of these, uh, both of these shows reference a whole lot of musical theater. They reference other things too. Um, And both of them have instances where they take a much bigger chunk from another text and incorporate it into the show. So Hamilton's 10 dual commandments is like a direct cognate of Notorious B.I.G.'s 10 crack commandments, right? They start off the same way. They start off with a count up in the song title, and then they walk through the commandments by number in song. That's exactly what's happening in the 10 dual commandments. That's a, a direct reference there, right? And we see that in Ted Lasso, right? When we have Ted's use of Alan Iverson's practice rant, when he repurposes it to- read my notes? Did you somehow <laughs> steal my notes? These are the literal <laughs> same two examples I pulled. I am, wow. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Did you just become best friends? You just became best friends. <laughs> go ahead and add what you're gonna add there because I, I think those two examples are- Totally, you're, I'm just tracking with you is all. I like literally was like, oh yeah, Iverson. And then you said it, so no, go. <laughs> Cool. Um, and so jumping back, Ted Lasso also has some Shakespearean things going on. There's this great piece uh, for the Folger Shakespeare Library written by Jared Tishner, which draws a lot of comparisons between Lasso and Midsummer Night's Dream in particular. Um, compares some quotes there. It's worth reading. Uh, there's also a podcast called Protest Too Much. And after season one, they did a whole episode casting Ted Lasso characters in Shakespearean roles. Um, it's a fun podcast to jump back it is after season one so some of those comparisons don't hold up particularly with regard to Nate (laughs) Um, but you know they didn't know it was coming any more than we did Uh, and we get at least one direct Shakespearean reference from Dr. Sharon when she says heavy is the head that wears the visor coach lasso which is a a reference to Henry the fourth part two with uneasy lies the head that wears the crown right so Hamilton has one direct very obvious Shakespearean call out in Take a Break when he's writing to Angelica. So quoting some lyrics from that, we have tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. I'll trust you understand my reference to another Scottish tragedy without having to name the play. But they, but he did name the play. Well, and, and that's the like... funny thing, right? And I think that shows sort of how mercurial and sort of reactive Hamilton is, right? He can't kind of stop himself because he, then he does. That's he says, bad they, luck. Uh, Well, and that's the point, right? Like he can't stop himself even when it's going to be bad. Also kind of funny when we look at Ted Lasso and how superstitious everyone in the show is, especially with the most recent episode with the 11-11 and Rebecca going off at Higgins for jinxing her. And the yips. And the the yips. yips. Oh, yes. Then he's like, got a Shakespearean fucking tragedy here. Like, it's like, can you be any. Exactly. Exactly. 
And so that the Hamilton song goes on to they think me Macbeth ambition is my folly. I'm a polymath, a pain in the ass, a total pain. Madison is Banquo, Jefferson's Macduff, Burnham Wood is Congress on the way to Dunsinane. So this whole big Macbeth chunk in that song, right? Later in the song, when Angelica is trying to convince him to come out to the, the country for the summer, she tells him, screw your courage to the sticking place, right? Which is how Lady Macbeth eggs Macbeth into killing people very much a big sort of Macbeth reference within Hamilton. And so I was trying to have a little fun with that and thinking who in Ted Lasso would fit that looking at Nate as Macbeth in Hamilton. He's certainly ambitious, right? In Macbeth, we have Macbeth gets promoted twice, right? So he has the the witch's prophecy that he's going to become Thane of Cawdor and then he's going to become the king. So he becomes Thane of Cawdor almost immediately at the start of the play. He has to go on and, and do a little bit of murder to go on to become the king, but he gets two promotions much in the same way that Nate does, right? He gets promoted from this minor role up by Ted in the same way that the king brings Macbeth up to, to Thane of Cawdor. And then I have to I have to stop you, Marita, because that phrase and he has to do a little bit of murder is just glorious. <laughs> And I'm using that. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> Not in your defense trial or anything, right? Just we'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. <laughs> but right? So so Macbeth willingly kills the king in the same way that Nate, I mean, he doesn't kill Ted. He does murder that sign, right? But But willingly moves on. Once they get in a leadership role, they get ruthless horrible to people increasingly paranoid right um something that i thought would be that this is a reach this isn't going to happen but if i were doing this this would be so much fun because if if it's been a while probably not for you uh since you're a, a theater um director but if it's been a while since you've experienced macbeth um macbeth is told in another prophecy that he doesn't have anything to fear until burnham wood comes to dunsinane right and he's like that's a forest it's not going anywhere that's fine and then in the play the soldiers that are coming to attack dunsinane sort of cut branches from the trees to disguise themselves as they come up right so this particular current premier league season has a super opportunity to do something with this metaphor right because last may one of the teams that got promoted is nottingham forest one of the nicknames for their team is the Tricky Trees. There could be so much fun with having the Ooh. Nottingham Forest bring down uh, West Ham in some way that I just think that would be. Okay, we're circling back to this. We're circling Glorious. back I, to I, this. I, don't, I think it was too late. I, I, I think they're going Star Wars, not Macbeth, but that would just be a fun little call out if they had fun. Why with not that. both? Yeah. Why not? Porque Why no los dos. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I was just like, the Macbeth thing really struck me too as I was thinking about both of these. Um, and I'm sure I lifted this from somewhere, but like you mentioned it already, but kind of the main theme of Macbeth is like the destruction that is wrought when someone's ambition is unchecked by any kind of moral standard or uh, accountability, right? And that's why I do kind of agree. I literally wrote down who is like the most kind of Hamilton slash Macbeth-esque in Ted Lasso. Like it's not Ted Lasso. It's probably Nate because he's someone who like Macbeth is not maybe naturally inclined to do evil or like bad things, but because he so desires that advancement, the 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 accolades that come with leadership, he's willing to kind of sacrifice what he would normally hold like in a high sort of moral uh, place, like place a high value on certain morals, I guess. And that's realistic because it's like boiling a frog, right? Like that that analogy of like a frog doesn't know it's being boiled because it's happening so slowly. And that's how people can go from being really quite morally okay to being really not morally okay. 
And it's why I think that like some people have raised the question, like, wouldn't Nate know how horrible Rupert is? Like, wouldn't he have been at Richmond? Like, how, why would he know? You know, why would he go essentially like when he knows like how horrible this person is? And it's not only that, but the fact that he can't see the way that, you know, even in the first two episodes, it's it's pretty clear that he's just a pawn in this game between Rupert and Rebecca. And the fact that both he and Rebecca are sort of uh, are not able to kind of comprehend that or like notice that yet is is concerning for both of them to kind of have that area of uh, unawareness. So interested to see where it goes. Well put, yeah. We also get there's something that Washington says to Hamilton in Cabinet Battle number one that I think is going to be really germane to Nate in season three when he says winning was easy, young man, governing's harder. Mm -hmm. And I think Nate has Nate wants all of the benefits without any of the risks, right? We see him as he's helping Ted coach, wanting all the credit for the strategic decisions he's making, but he's afraid when, you know, the the false nine isn't working, right? Well, they're just going to use it to blame it on me. Well, when you're a head coach, everything gets blamed on you. And I don't think, and I've said this before, Nate does not have skin thick enough to to deal with that. Um, he's, he's not going to cope with, with anything like that. Yeah, if some rando on Twitter can get under your skin, like good luck being a premier league manager. Points, points. Absolutely. One comment Facts. out of right. He's scrolling like hundreds and hundreds of great comments. And the one he's just like, it like blows him up. Mm -hmm. He's not even hiding it anymore. I think what the first episode where we notice every time somebody walks into Rebecca's room and she's doing something, and I'm quote unquote shameful, she slams that laptop down, right? He just turns around to whoever that dude was and he's like, get out. Like, just oh, he doesn't right. even, he's not, there's no shame there anymore for it. He's just fully invested in oh, it now. Loved that parallel. I do want to say in terms of like that negative comment as a professor, when you get that one negative review, <laughs> it does stick with you. Oh, <laughs> Even, no matter how much you try to forget that they said X, Y, and Z, it's the one that you keep coming back to. But that's why we can redeem <laughs> exactly, it. Exactly. That's why he is redeemable. It's relatable. But also, I think it's what you do with that when you take that negative. Like, yes, it it. It festers in you for a little bit, but if you're able to then process it, internalize it, and like push it out afterward, then then you're you're in better shape than Nate is in season three anyway. <laughs> I I agree with that. I also think Nate being in a more public role has to expect so much more of that. Like what he's seen so far compares to maybe, you know, because I, I have also had negative reviews sometimes in my classes, even though they're not in the majority. But like, if you coach youth sports, like I've coached kindergartners and taken more flack than what he has seen so far, right? It's all right. So I wanted to talk about, you know, there there is so much literature that's written on Hamilton and it feels like in the late teens of, of the last decade, basically every social sciences journal in whatever discipline sort of did their own issue on things related to Hamilton. So there's economics and there's uh, theater studies and there's just all sorts of stuff. But I found one paper I wanted to talk about that is another parallel here, really in leadership development, sort of the the other side to the coin of, of what we're seeing with the Nate Macbeth uh, parallel. So the paper is called Prince Hal and Hamilton, Becoming a Leader in Shakespeare's Henriad and Lin-Manuel Miranda's Musical. And the journal is Acotaciones, Journal of Research in Theater and Theatrical Creation um, by Anna Crespo Roca. And so what the paper does is it compares the characters of Hamilton and Prince Hal from Shakespeare's Henriad, which is Richard II, uh, both parts of Henry IV and Henry V. And the paper goes through and sort of talks about how the authors develop the leadership in these characters as they move through time, 
talks about how they're contrasted by their mirror antagonists. So Hamilton's mirror antagonist is Burr. Uh, Henry's or Prince Hal's is is Hotspur. Um, talks about how in order to be successful, they need to find this middle ground between battle skill and diplomacy that's lacking really early on. And in fact, how in Hamilton, we see Hamilton and Burr start to adopt each other's tactics. Hamilton starts talking less and smiling more, right? Doing what he has to do to get his plan on the Congress floor is the quote from the the musical. Uh, And Burr goes out campaigning, which is not something that he would normally have done, but he says he learned it from Hamilton. And both show the dark sides of the effects of what the main characters do to others. So we see, you know, the impact of Hamilton's affair and how open he is to admitting it in order to save himself politically in a way that's really damaging to his family. Uh, we see the downsides of Hal's rejection and ultimate sort of exile of Falstaff away from him. And it got me thinking about the leadership development in Ted Lasso, because there is a lot of that going on with players and with coaches, but I was struggling to see who really worked in this comparison until we had this most recent episode. And the reason for that is we have Keeley and we have Hamilton throughout the play, right? Getting digs based on where he came from. The play starts off with a line, how does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman, right? Uh, the author of this paper points out that Burr uses immigrant to him as a slur. Jefferson says he smells like new money and, and dresses like fake royalty. Um, it's a little bit different than Prince Hal and Shakespeare because his early issues were because of his wild behavior. He was already royal, right? But Keeley's a little bit of a mix of both these things, right? She's famous for being almost famous. She's done modeling. She's once what did they say jumped out of an airplane topless eating a hamburger for an ad right (laughs) we also know that she saw her mother work really hard for someone else and that person took the credit and that doesn't really suggest a very privileged upbringing but keely really clearly has insecurities related to her past that maybe she puts on herself even more than other people do but it it is going to influence how other people see her because Fair or or not, mostly not, any woman who chooses to be topless in a public environment just doesn't get taken seriously, no matter what the quality of their work is, right? So much like the other characters mentioned, Keeley's trying to grow up into this leadership role, but she's not yet very confident, maybe not even determined enough yet to do that, right? She didn't even Google what CFO meant, even though she has a CFO for her company that's telling her what to do all the time. She doesn't really know what that role means. So we've got Keeley in this role she's trying to grow into. And then we look at the environment they're coming out of. So Hamilton in the first act has his group of tavern buddies. Prince Hal has Falstaff, who he's out drinking and and getting into trouble with. And now we bring into this this new character who we talked about earlier, Shandy, who Keeley brings in. And she's an old friend and she's clearly bright and has potential. But she doesn't seem to be particularly matured in a way that's going to drive Keeley forward, right? She's making suggestions like the text that we, you know, go get mimosas at work on the corporate credit card, right? And so Keeley, I think, is going to have that sort of tension moving forward as she grows into this leadership role. So as Hamilton moves forward, he abandons his loyalty to at least one of his friends because he doesn't, he convinces Washington not to send aid to Lafayette, right? Prince Hal banishes Falstaff. And so it's going to be interesting to see how Keeley navigates the opposing pressures as she learns to be a leader between Barbara, who expects her to take things very, very seriously, and Shandy, who she is trying to sort of move into this leadership role or sort of move into a career with her, but who's probably, I think we're going to see a lot of instances of her trying to sort of not drag Keeley down because she doesn't see it that way, but maybe hold her back from being the kind of leader she'll need to be to have her company be successful. Um, So that was another set of... uh, 
comparisons I thought was particularly interesting. I would love to hear what y'all think of that one. I mean, I was just going to say that I think that 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 type of parallel and considering Hamilton through that that view of someone who still has to grow is it makes a lot of sense to connect him with Keeley in that in that regard. I'm hoping that because Kaylee had the sort of like gumption to stand up to Barbara and be like, you were really rude there, that she also has the gumption to stand up to Shandy and be like, look, if you're going to do this, you need to take it seriously. But the difference is Shandy's her friend and she might she might not want to look like she thinks herself up above what Shandy is. So, yeah, I'm really interested, interested to see where that storyline is going to go. Yeah, and I, I want to add to that too. Like, you know, I I took a lot of issue with Rebecca's advice to Keely at the end of season two, which was hire your friend. That's actually like the absolute worst advice because nepotism. Yeah. Nepotism. And you're not like, you can't be friends with your employees. And like, it worked for Rebecca and Keely. It worked, but like, that was, that was not like, like you can be friends, you can be friendly with your employees, but when you have to be a business person and you have to make decisions that have nothing to do with your friendship. Well, I think that's a big difference. Rebecca and Rebecca and Keely were not friends beforehand. Um, They became friends or they were like just new friends at that time, not old friends. I'm also going to use the sitcom defense a little bit as that. I am a massive fan of the found family um, half hour comedy trope, but in a work situation, I'm the kind of person that's like, no, I'm not coming to your work nights out. I'm going home at five because that's when I stop getting paid. So, <laughs> so you know, as much as the found family sitcom workplace environment is one of my favorites, it's not something that I probably involve myself in. So, yeah, I get that. I have one more uh, just Shakespeare's tie-in that's a total reach and it's just totally for my own, like... We love a reach here. We're going to be grasping at all the straws here, but there um, there's a Hamlet connection to just to Hamilton only because there is a now infamous story that Lin-Manuel Miranda has told where some uh, woman was like in an Uber and like pulled up next to him on the street. And she was like, Hey, you're the guy who wrote Hamlet, right? And he is like, lady, I wish I wrote Hamlet. And then she says, yay, Hamlet, as the Uber, like, speeds away. <laughs> so, like, hashtag, that's amazing. Hashtag yay, Hamlet was, like, a thing for a long time in the early days of Hamilton Twitter. It's since kind of, like, passed into legend, <laughs> especially now that Lin-Manuel doesn't really oversee his own Twitter. But it got me thinking, like, is there a Hamlet, like, Ted Lasso uh, thing? And I may have missed this as you were talking, but whenever Roy is like, avenge me, Keely, it reminds me of when... Uh, the ghost of Hamilton's or the ghost of uh, Hamlet's dad, like asked for revenge. <laughs> nice. I love Very this. nice. So, I love I this. Say, yay Hamlet. <laughs> yay Hamlet. Love it. I bet that woman went home and like wanted to drop into a hole in the ground. Right. As soon as she realized what she said. No, I bet she never realized. <laughs> there was a I, certain... bet, yeah. I would have been that. I don't know how you can pin someone else's tweet to your profile, but I would have found a way. Yeah, screenshot it. Me up in the middle of the night for weeks, honestly. <laughs> awesome, Marita. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. And now we're going to go to Andrea. Hello, hello. Um, so I am going to start with gushing a little bit about Hamilton. Um, first, and you have to just hear me. So <laughs> you're welcome. I love it. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, like. Musical theater is something I've been obsessed with for a long time. And honestly, I think I think it's partially related to a love of music. Like if you could break into song 
to explain emotion or like a situation, like a song is better than a one line. If you can break into a whole song to tell the whole story about why this situation means a certain way to you, it's a better way of communicating than being like, I'm going to make my one, my one sentence. (laughs) That's my, it depends on who's doing it. Cause if it was me, it wouldn't be singing. It would just be wailing at you. (laughs) No one wants to hear me singing. Um, (laughs) um, And so just like, you know, um, we get, we do get all the big musical touring cast here in Chicago. But like when I, when I go to New York, I usually do try to see something and like, I think a lot of the touring cast can be really good and you can see interesting things, but I do like to see the original as it was intended. Um, and I know there's a lot of privilege there and, um, you know, I, like, I, I understand that, but it's something that I'm willing to spend my money on. Um, cause it means something to me. And, um, I also think it was really cool with Hamilton that he actually very specifically made it accessible to kids, like brought kids in for free to see it multiple times. Um, you know, like, I think there was a lot of criticism at one point about like, oh, so you've got this show with this diverse cast about diversity and you're, sh- you know, it's like on Broadway where tickets right. are like, fi- you know, like on the floor, like $500 a piece. We're going to see it. <laughs> right. That is the thing, right? That is the yeah. thing about theater. It's sometimes very inaccessible. So that's good to hear. Yeah. And I mean, they were, it was, um, you know, they also did that thing, like the lotteries to get free tickets and they tried to make, you know, they try to make it accessible a little bit. I know it's not perfect, but. Do we have any Brooklyn Nine-Niners here? Oh, yeah. Obsessed. Big time. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine, when Captain Holt buys um, the, he's, oh God, our name is escaping me right now. Um, Mon- what is it? Uh, Munch? No. What? It's basically Captain Wunsch. Yeah, it's his nemesis. And she's moving to, and I think it's either Boston. Is it Boston? Yeah. And he's like, I've bought our tickets for a show, a musical in Boston because it's like second tier to Broadway. Enjoy your like <laughs> yeah. understudies. And I was like, this is so great. It's like the nichest insult ever. It's so funny. It's so elitist, but it's perfect. so Holt. <laughs> <laughs> Very Holt. Nine nine. All right. Nine, nine. So I do want also want to tell one story about when it opened in Chicago. Um, it opened like a couple weeks before the 2016 election. I think I think I yeah, I get I got my so the first time I saw it in Chicago, I got it the day after the election was when I got my tickets. You know, we all know what happened. And so I was meeting my friend. I, we're all really upset and we're like, we like we almost didn't even really like honestly, was just like, I can't even sit in the theater, like I'm so upset. And we're like, no, we should go. We're like, let's go get some dinner together. And then we'll, you know, like just try and enjoy ourselves. And of course we like, we like, you know, I mean, again, talking about privilege, it was like in downtown Chicago, we went to some restaurant over there and like, there was a literally a table of white dudes drinking their asses off, just being disgusting, just being disgusting, talking about Hillary, talking about like, just, they were celebrating um, it was really gross. And we were just like, this is like the worst night. Like we're finally seeing, you know, like the opening of Hamilton in Chicago and we're like, could not be more angry and upset. And then like, I don't know, that show was like magic. It was like, they were like, they put so much emotion into it. Everyone was crying. Like everyone was crying together. It was just like this, like entire theater of people, like trying to understand what just happened the day before together and it was beautiful and it honestly like when i think of my my favorite time seeing hamilton obviously seeing the original cast in new york was shit was everything but like that that one was like 
so like so much more of like a personal connection and like you know like a bunch of people grieving this election together watching the story about our founding fathers with this diverse cast like it was just magic can I imagine it was quite atmospheric right yeah because just trying to imagine the atmosphere of that of like all these like-minded people because the type of people going to see Hamilton I don't think we're voting for Trump right let's face it (laughs) yeah well, except didn't Pence go to see it at one point and they addressed him directly from the stage, didn't they? Call yeah, him? And they yeah. left the ticket in New York for Trump like every night for I don't know how long they, oh. they saved a ticket for him. <laughs> wow. I was going to say, and I think that's where like above and beyond all the, the criticism and like the tomes that have been written about the show, like it's experiences like that that really like make live performance and live theater so special right because like at the end of the night everyone came away like you said like there was there was healing there there was catharsis there Mm -hmm. was there was grieving like what sort of whatever stage people were in at that moment like that's that's the power of live theater and live storytelling even when it is imperfect even when you can find your little quibbles with it or say yeah this and this you know here's my nitpicks like at the end of the day that doesn't override like how you are changed by by seeing that and i think that's and that's, I feel like the same thing with Ted Lasso. Like there are, there are plenty of little criticisms here and there that are totally valid. But at the end of the day, like the net gain for someone like me watching it is just totally overrides those things. And I can hold both things in my head simultaneously. And yeah. I kind of, like the show still makes me want to be a better version of myself to use the Yeah, yeah. It's like Abed says in the, the season finale of Community is you have to give your favorite show room to grow. You have to let it make mistakes. You have to let it have bad episodes and, you know, that sort of thing. And that really sticks with me out of all the sitcoms that, yeah, so I thoroughly agree in the room for growth. I mean, if we just keep taking the criticisms as right, let's stop doing this, then we get no net gain. But so, I think yeah. that's one of mm-hmm. the things I like about y'all's podcast is that because you wait until the end of the season to do your recap episodes, you have a full picture. And not to say, like, I look, I love that some of them are doing it now and you do it later because it, it just spreads the love even longer. It spreads the content. But, as well, but yeah. there is something to sit to be said for waiting for the whole picture before you comment mm-hmm. on like, oh, what is this? What does it mean? Like, I, I don't like the way this played out or that. Well, we're still only partway through the story. So give it give it a moment. Right. And yeah, so I appreciate that about y'all. <laughs> Thank you. I think too, you know, going back to what you were saying um, about you know live theater and having that experience too. I think you know that's something that ties these experiences together as well. Like Hamilton being this sort of phenomenon that like people who didn't ever know anything about musical theater, I mean, listened to the soundtrack and tried to go see their first Broadway show. You know, it was something that brought people together that might normally not be brought together, you know, different audiences and different people being interested in the same art. And in a way, that's what I think is really special about like Ted Lasso, this sort of like niche community that we have, Mm -hmm. you know, every, every time we've gotten to speak to anyone like for our podcast or share anything on the internet and, you know, Twitter and, and Instagram, it's just a positive place, a place where people really just want to like come together and share about, you know, how art can make the world a better place. And I think it's especially something that is important, you know, following difficult elections and COVID and things like that. Like we just consume art so differently and i think it it really is something that 
we we should celebrate more and more and be mm-hmm. better about you know yeah i mean you guys were the, the first you were the, you were one of the first people i interacted with on twitter about ted lasso because i started watching it and i was just like yeah like i remember and there was that one one um lady that did the ted lasso gift she made those great gifts yes and we and we had oh the best gifts and like we had that little like that was the first community it was so fun yes well i just to your point of like the mixture of like just the cultural importance of both of the shows I think right now. And then the mixture kind of of politics and policy in that, like just an interesting bit that someone else pointed out on Twitter that I was thinking about as we were prepping for this episode was like both the cast of both of these shows have been to the white house. And that is not normal for folks outside the United States. Like cast of TV shows and like Broadway shows are not usually specially invited to like hang out with the president of the United States. And the fact that both of these shows have kind of reached these heights and then are using the platforms to to make change and to speak about issues they care about. Like for a lot of Lasso fans, you're going to know exactly they went and talked about mental health and the importance of healthcare. Uh, but back in like 2016, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast were like invited and he, and he was able to lobby Congress on behalf of Puerto Rico and the debt crisis in 2016. And so like, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's wild how, you know, the, the shows have this connection because literally people were like, I think the last time we saw like creative team do this was maybe Hamilton, you know, like the team who wins the NBA finals, the Super Bowl champ, you know, that they always sort of get a standing invitation, but it really takes kind of like a rising to a certain cultural position at a certain point in time to say, yeah, cast of the show, come to the white house and hang out. Yeah. And like talk your stuff in the press room, you know. So, anyways, yeah, no, back to you, Andrea. Yeah. (laughs) Um. So, like, one of the things that I thought was interesting about one of the most interesting things for me about Hamilton is that juxtaposition between Hamilton and Burr, and they are like two sides of the same coin. There's things that are similar. There's things that are different. Like many similar political and professional aspirations. Um, but differences in more personal aspects, like the way that what drove them, the, the, the way that they thought about things was different, but like, I loved the way that they showed the connection with them throughout. And that honestly made me think a lot about Ted. And I think Ted is in himself a series of contradictions. A lot of the time, you know, he has his insecurities and issues. He lacks finesse sometimes, a lot of times, (laughs) He uh, he's his own worst enemy in some aspects, but then his ignorance sometimes feels like a gift, too. And I think we can all agree that Ted's positivity is refreshing and like one of the things that draws us all in. But I also believe his over positivity isn't honest. And, you know, I think essentially Ted is a story of two people of Hamilton and Burr. You know, like there's a couple things like right Hamilton, his father dying, leaving them alone. Speaking of waiting till the end, we don't actually know about Ted's mom. So I'm not going to say anything about it because we don't we don't know. <laughs> I mean, she hasn't come up, but we don't really know what happened to her. So but like the refrains about Hamilton, like why does he write like he's running out of time? You know, his seeming constant action like Ted has this like constant talking and this desire to control and speak and talk and like he can't shut up and it's like why does ted talk like he's running out of time like (laughs) you know and like you know rebecca telling ted to stop kind of like washington telling hamilton to stop talking like you know stop slow down like you know and burr telling him like you know talk less you know there's a connection there for me with all of them and like speaking of chris jackson i've been 
these ladies are sick of me talking about him. I've just been like, as I rewatched it, I'm like, oh my God, he's perfect in every way. We're not tired of it. You're good. <laughs> no, we're good. No, I'm fine with it. I love him. I love everything about him. Um, but one of the things that's really cool is like, I kind of love how every so often you'll catch Lin-Manuel just like gazing at Chris Jackson or Leslie Odom Jr. with this like, you're amazing and I love you, right? Like just adoration. And like, because Lin-Manuel is the genius behind it all, but he knows he can't sing. He can't sing. I mean, he can sing. You know what I'm saying? Like he gets by, but he's not a powerhouse. Right. No. He he could not have sing either of those roles. Right. No. And like, (laughs) I love those. Right. No. Right. No. (laughs) Well, that's why. So to your point of Ted being both, like there was a moment early on in the interviews for like when when Hamilton was starting to really take off after it transferred to Broadway. And there was a moment where Lin-Manuel talked about like, well, when I was writing it, like I really saw a lot of myself in Hamilton, but I saw a lot of myself in Burr, too. And I wasn't sure which one I was going to play until Leslie Odom Jr. read for it. And then I was like he's the guy and i was kind of like really though like those songs are flipping hard like that is a dream role for any actor right now to play aaron burr like he has the two best songs in the show arguably like i mean i was just kind of like okay like respect it but i was a little bit kind of like but his voice can't carry that exactly well that's why i was like yeah of course you had to be hamilton like you would (laughs) have had to do some rewrites you know no offense at all no to be fair like and he's talked about this too. Like you see any Hamilton on a tour or in one of the production cities like uh, San Francisco or Chicago or LA, like oh, those Hamiltons can, are all, are all just better, better vocalists than yeah. him. Like, and he's admitted to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Lin-Manuel Miranda knows how to put aces in places, you know, yes. like Chris Jackson, Leslie Odom Jr. And really, you know, Ted Lasso does the same thing. Like he, he yes. sees his, his weaknesses or areas where he's maybe not the the best strategist, you know, so he brings Nate along and he encourages people to be there, like to, to take those roles, those leadership roles, because he knows where he has deficits. He knows how Mm -hmm. to motivate. He figures out how to motivate Jamie. He like learns how to motivate Roy, right? Like he knows that he's not supposed to tell Roy to, stop the bully Roy's just gonna do it like he has to let it happen right so yeah even if he growls about it (laughs) of course he will (laughs) right so Ted literally is Hamilton Burr and Lin-Manuel Miranda like that was kind of my point like he's literally (laughs) um and so yeah so again Burr you know talk less smile more like I think sometimes Ted's inner voice like Burr is kind of Ted's inner voice like, I think he's like going and there's probably a voice in him telling me like Ted shut up and he like, but he can't because he gets. Can I just going. say it was really refreshing to see a man get told to smile more for a change. <laughs> Which I thought like that was the joke at first. And then it came, became this whole other motif. And I was like, okay, but yes, yeah. I, I noticed that too. I thought the same thing, Michaela. Oh, it's so um, right. And Aaron Burr, your pride will be the death of us all. I think Ted's pride, his unwillingness to like cross certain lines, say certain things is what hurts the team like that's the thing that's actually like going to hurt the team and like even like you know even when rebecca got mad at him in the beginning here of season three and was like you know where's that ted that said like we're gonna win the whole fucking thing like Mm -hmm. where did he go well he's aaron burr now he's being aaron burr right now just kind of being like oh no 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 let's step back let's hold like let's you know we have these ideas like he's just kind of stalling 
So yeah, Ted's pride is unwillingness to cross certain lines and say what needs to ha- say and do what needs to happen. Sometimes is what's getting in the way of the whole team. Um, sometimes it works for Hamilton too, but sometimes it doesn't. And I think sometimes Hamilton needed to be a bit more like Burr, and Burr needed to be a bit more like Hamilton. Ted needs to balance out these sides of him and and what all these things are fighting within him. And I think that Ted's lack of honesty is starting to hurt the team. That was my my main kind of set of points. And I did just kind of like to to about bringing in people that help him. You know, I think Lafayette is beard. Um, you know, Ted bringing in beard, Hamilton bringing in Lafayette um, and Thomas Jefferson is Rupert. Oh, no. <laughs> wow, that's harsh. No, um, not even King George. Well, not say, even King George. Yeah. Not even King George. King George, by the way. I, I yeah, he's wondered great. when he was going to come up because I his parts were phenomenal. I love I mean, that guy. I love Jonathan Groff. And I think I would I, I hesitate to say this, but I almost think that the King George that we saw in Chicago because we saw it live, Andrew Call, he was amazing. I don't know that I have laughed so hard in my life. <laughs> yeah. Was- Do you know what it was for me was the Jonathan Groff's dead eyes, like the sort of the, the eyes he had. There was a disconnect from what was going on to, and these eyes were just there and I was like, oh, he's he's really good. And then the whole spitting all over himself and I was just like, I love this. <laughs> to your point of like their similarities and like there like, is... One thing I did kind of think as we're like comparing characters in both of the shows and try, trying to match them up, like both shows feature a significant inanimate object as a character, right? Mm-hmm. Like in Ted Lasso, you have the believe sign, which essentially functions as a character. Like it got murdered, but hopefully it'll come back to life. I think a they, little bit murdered, a little bit of murder, a little bit, murder. <laughs> a little bit, of, a murder. Little bit of murder. And then in Hamilton, there's a character who is known as the bullet. Um, and it, she's actually played by Ariana DeBose, who's in Schmigadoon and has hosted huge all the star things. Now, like yeah. she's, she's everywhere now and she's fabulous. Right. Um, and, but like it's interesting to see because Hamilton sort of invokes the bullet early on as he muses about death, right? Like that it's a constant, you see the bullet in slow motion. And the reason she's called that is because the character literally is like kind of pantomiming, holding a bullet. And as you hear this gunshot, she slowly walks across the stage toward Hamilton. And several times in the in the first and second act of the show, the bullet whizzes past him or goes over him. And it's not until we have that bullet moment at the very end of the show where there's the duel that spoiler alert hamilton dies um where she's featured prominently right in the center of the stage walking across the turntable toward him uh and so it's just i don't think that you know i'm not drawing a parallel saying that the belief sign is the bullet and it's going to be the death of ted but there there is something about the death of the belief sign and just like the themes that both of those hold and how central they are to both shows that i just find really fascinating hmm. yeah there is a slight overlap, though. I know you're saying you weren't trying to say that the, the bullet and the believe sign could be the death of Ted, but similar to what Andrea was saying, that sometimes Ted's optimism is actually a hindrance to him. So you could make that connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think my my favorite moment in this most recent episode was when Ted called Roy out. Um, that's so unted. He's like, you are ruining this and you have to fix it. Right. Which is a fantastic line when he says, I don't know what your beef is, but you need to order off the vegan menu and squash it. <laughs> yeah. I, that was, I, that I was know. Amazing. And the double pun with the squash as well. Like, I just like, love it. That is deep, like, Tedception mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. I love it. All right. So my very last point is a little bit of a, a point and a question. So do all of you understand what happens at the very end of the musical when Eliza dies? 
and she meets Hamilton again and supposedly in heaven. And he walks her to the front of the stage and she gasps and start crying. Do No, I didn't. No, I'm going to be honest. I didn't know. I was hoping this would come up. I, I am still baffled by it. And I've, I've thought a lot about it. So, so uh, Eliza I mean, lives long enough to preserve a lot of the, right. The memories and the stories. She's the whole thing. She we're telling your story um, about Hamilton, Washington and others. And when Hamilton walks to the front of the stage of the audience becomes real, they break the, the audience. Wall. Oh, wow. It's a breaking. And, and she's see, waking, breaking the wall. And she sees the audience and she starts crying because she realized all of her work. I'm getting chills just talking about it. I'm getting all chills. of her work. Uh, wow, became true, and now she sees she sees the audience. So, who lives, who dies, who tells your story? Trent Krim is going to tell the story. Mm. Oh, yes. I love Trent as Eliza. <laughs> oh, I'm here wow. for it. <laughs> Wait, does that mean Ted's going to cheat on Trent? Now, don't <laughs> well, don't you know. mess with the tread chipper. <laughs> like listen like ship what you want to ship but like i just i love people who have who are tread shippers just because i think it's it's so fun and out there that it's just that beautiful head cannon and let you like i don't think any of them think it's going to be canon maybe they do i don't know don't quote me i don't think they think it's going to be be canon but i think it's a fun ship to have in your head cannon I think it'd be cool because Trent Krim going from is this a fucking joke to having a crush on Ted would be really cool. My favorite thing about that ship is that they call uh, uh, there's one person who she always does hashtag Ted dependent. Ted dependent. That's right. Yeah, I've seen that. I, That's a better name. <laughs> it's really huh. good. It sounds kind of like a diagnosis, though. Codependent. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Bit. so Michaela, you have a game for us, but before we get to that, maybe if there's any other like last thoughts or or ideas that people wanted to share about parallels, does that make sense? I I, I thought there was a an interesting parallel between what Ted is going through this season and Dear Theodosia as a song, right? This yes. deciding what you're going to do for your children and and sort of deciding what the best thing you can do to make the world better for them all the time worrying because your father wasn't around, which is something Ted definitely went through. And now he's concerned about with Mm. Henry. Yeah. Yeah. And he tried, you know, in the song too, they're talking about having to create this world in order for their children to thrive in it. Right. And Ted early on, you know, in his talking, like talking with his son, he's like, he's questioning, why am I still in London? And his son is, you know, the wise one who gives him the answer. And he's like, dad, you got to do this. You said you're going to do it. And, you know, for the son to sort of remind him, you don't quit, you know, I think was mm. full, full circle. And yeah, a, a little bit to like give him permission to say like, you know, I'm okay. We're okay. Like, you know, the relationship isn't dissolving. Like maybe it's not where either of them wants it to be or hopes it will be in the future, but like that, that relationship is still there. And like, while you're there, like do what you went there to yeah. do, you know, like whether, and I think that has, it holds both meanings, right? Like in his personal relationship, like with him and Michelle and kind of fixing that, which, um, I, you know, I'm interested to see kind of what we get between Ted and Michelle this season, because I do think there's something coming. I do think there's gonna have to be a reckoning of sorts for Ted to really grow. Uh, there's just, there has to be, I will, I'll be shocked if there's not. Well, it, it probably um, has to do with Jake. And- from state farm right. was, that, was that 
Was that Lasso Cast? Jake from State <laughs> Farm. That was, Even that I'm was Lasso, Lasso Cast. That was Lasso they were, Cast. They were talking about uh, about Jake being Jake from State Farm. If Santa was real in this universe, then why couldn't Jake from State Farm be real? <laughs> but the original Jake or the new hot Jake? I think Jake hot Jake State is who they were. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was Kenny, and I think he was talking about hot Jake. <laughs> um, you know, I really loved hearing all the different connections with like who who is Hamilton and stuff. And I think a lot of people didn't like, there's a lot of reasons not to think it's Ted, but I kind of went with like the most simplistic version of like Aaron Burr and being Nate and, and Hamilton (laughs) being Ted, you know, I know that was kind of straightforward, but there was one line in particular, please someone correct me if I'm wrong, because I did not rewatch for this. I just went from memory. Um, But it's the, I think this is Aaron Burr, right? He says, now I'm the villain in your history. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was too bl- too young and blind to see. I should have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. And I'm like, well, that's Nate. Like, <laughs> Nate. Yeah, I, wa- I want totally. him to see that before we get to the end. <laughs> well, and especially we already see that parallel of their, their two coaching trajectories, you know, where, where Ted's first encounter at training in training with sam he calls him to the sideline and he has that encouraging moment where you know those of us who are teachers understand how to motivate people extrinsically you know and he talks to sam and it's kind of a a strange metaphor of like the goldfish but you know he's being encouraging and trying to get him to go back out there and then we see that immediately with nate calling someone over to the sideline and it's so is he called the dum-dum line or something the dumb, dumb, yeah, the dumb, dumb that is so awful. It, it just yeah, made me know, cringe. Sometimes I want to say that <laughs> <laughs> to a... my students, but I would never exactly. do that. <laughs> yeah, just think it. Just say that in our hearts. <laughs> Beyond that, like with a coach, like, you know, even in high school, our girls' co- soccer coach would swear a lot, but just such an innocuous insult, right? I mean, it's, it doesn't even have any teeth. Yeah. Right. So mm-hmm. it, it not only defeats the purpose and is terrible coaching, but also isn't likely to hit very hard because they're just going to be like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of little pricks. <laughs> Bex, I like that you go with the kind of straightforward, obvious, like Nate Burr comparison, because did we talk about the other direct reference to Hamilton that happens in Ted Lasso? Uh, so I was asking, Wait. was there one where he I thought he rhymed with Aaron Burr's name one time, but no one. No one remembered that. No, so I thought I think that's something I made up. <laughs> I think in season two, episode twelve, they're having another impromptu Diamond Dogs meeting, and Roy is uh, around, and they they're doing their we'll, we'll let this junkyard dog in something something. I haven't seen that episode in a minute, but then they're like, "Do you want to join us, Roy?" And he's like, "I wouldn't mind being in the room whilst it happens." Ooh, right? Wow, call. a room. I that is a room where it happens, mm-hmm. like you know, kind of adjacent nice. which your to your burr like connection like room where it happens is the moment where burr becomes a villain um it is it is the moment where the he pulls the parachute like all the wind is sucked out and it's like okay i want to be in the room i'm gonna do whatever mm-hmm. it takes you know and so it's interesting because in that same conversation in ted lasso where roy makes that comment or maybe it's not that it's not that conversation, but the same episode. That's when Nate kind of like confesses to kissing Keely and all the other things that he's done. And even though he's given a pass, it somehow sours mm-hmm. him because he's like, 
he still has that like sort of inferiority complex or not being seen as a big dog. And I think whether or not he had already decided to go to West Ham, I think that's the moment that embitters him to the point where he's like eventually going to rip And you even sign, get that you know? like yes. auditorily when they dismiss Diamond Dogs dismount and they're like, rrr, rrr, and he's just like, woof. Like it's such a very yeah. negative change of that. There are several times where he pivots in that season, but I think that's the real moment. It's like, okay, like something is broken. Mm-hmm. So- that's interesting that you brought that up because there's part of the reason I think Nate relates or reacts, excuse me, so badly to Roy not being upset is because Nate starts to bristle at all the infantilizing treatment and infantilizing language. And so he wants to be seen as a threat and he's not, and it's not Burr, it's Hamilton, but in Hamilton, um, there's the whole interaction with George Washington where Washington keeps calling him son and he keeps saying, don't call me son. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, that's where he... key for like, if you have a cast, that, I mean, granted Washington is, is also portrayed by a BIPOC actor, but like, that's definitely a very, in, not just infantilizing, but um, in terms of like race relations and stuff like that, yes, that's, agreed. that's a huge component. So it, it doubles down in Hamilton. Right. But same with, in a sense with Nate, because he is the only BIPOC member of the staff good sports that was really good (laughs) um all right let's let's have some fun (laughs) yeah i'm going to follow my normal tradition of when we collab with another fantastic podcast i usually do a game and this is a game of sorts what's happening is the ted lasso actors and i'm making this clear not the characters the actual actors are putting on a hamilton show but we need to cast them and I've got some ideas, but I do need help with the casting. So if you could all just be my casting agents for the next however long this takes, hopefully not like four hours. It's <laughs> <laughs> all arguing about who should play who. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've listed um, most of the main cast and I have a list of people, but I'm not going to put anybody any, any ideas in anybody's head because I actually really want to see everybody's thoughts. So let's start with Alexander Hamilton. We need to cast one of the Ted Lasso actors as Alexander Hamilton. Who are we going for? Brett and Marissa, start us off. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) So do they have to sing too? Yes, but if it's it's up to you if you want to pretend that we're just going with everybody has the same skill set. Or if you want because to, because then Sam wouldn't that. be able to be in it. Or right? I love my baby Sam, but he cannot say. I mean, excuse me, <laughs> Tahib, as Sam cannot say. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um. So, like, what about? Can we agree on Phil Dunster as Hamilton? Like, is that mm, interesting? Oh, that would be fun. What's everybody else's thoughts? I'm trying to think. Well. It really, a lot of the players, I think, could be Hamilton because I'm just envisioning. I'm working backwards and envisioning like, just don't like, don't take up all the other good roles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's casting, so we can always cast somebody and then change our minds and just let them know that this happened in the Golden Girls. Rose and Blanche were um, yeah, opposites; so they were switched at the last minute. So don't you know? We're not setting it in stone. Don't worry. What about um, Billy Harris? 
But, Dr. Ooh, Colin. Colin. Colin is Alexander Hamilton. Interesting. I don't know. I just, I, I, maybe I'm just too basic, but I was like, well, it's the lead character. Shouldn't we put Jason Sudeikis in that role? <laughs> but, I mean, it, it kind of feels natural, but yeah, I didn't, I also didn't want to be like too basic about it. I also like, I love him as like Washington energy, though. I want to say, like, daddy yeah, I can see that energy. Yeah, I want to see Roy as daddy, daddy Washington. <laughs> And plus, like trying to sing like Chris Jackson, like Brett Goldstein, I just I don't see that going well, and it could just be really fun. But also, Brett Goldstein as the king would be funny. Just be yes, I had Brendan down as king. As king. Oh, oh, you're right. Oh. No, you're right. You're right. I stand corrected. That is correct. That is it's like a, such a physical comedian that I thought he would do because there's I a mean, lot of physicality to that role. As an obsessive like vocalist and musical theater nerd, I mean, like my first reaction is to like want to put your aces in places, right? So you have Hannah Waddingham. I mean, mm -hmm. she has to be Angelica and Eliza, right? <laughs> oh, both okay. of them. She's oh, like the Juno. Juno is and Peggy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was actually kind of thinking Juno as King George, but I think Brendan is the right choice. <laughs> Juno could have been interested as King George, though. I could see that. We should understudy her. We'll or understudy Jefferson. her for the role. She could be a really funny Jefferson, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. See, I'm going off into smaller roles. I'd like to see Cola as as Hercules Mulligan. He's got that. Perfect. Exactly. Yep. Now, I actually picked Brett for Hercules, because since he's already playing one in the Marvel <laughs> Universe, we may as well just keep it easy, you know? I actually had a hard time placing Brett because it's the same with yourselves. I was like, what, what, you know, in comparison to Roy Kent, but also Brett as an actor as well. I was like, I can't, but I picked Toheeb as Alexander Hamilton. That's a good choice too. I mean, like he has the, and I think like knowing his character in Hamilton too, I know we're casting actors, but just like the way Toheeb is like, he does like his character takes that risk and he, he himself mm -hmm. is such a charming person, both in real life. Well, at least in interviews yeah. and on the show, like so charismatic. So like, yeah, I mean, he has that Hamilton quality for sure. Did you all see the video with uh, Toheeb meeting his past drama teacher mm -hmm. and telling them, yes. you know, oh, crying. Yeah. Uh, Marissa, you'll, that'll be you soon. You'll have pe people remembering you as their inspiration for. Yeah, we'll we'll see. That they might be one of the ones who wrote the the one bad comment in my. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't worry about them. Who is, who is Nick Muhammad gonna play? Yeah. Well, now I don't want to give mine away. Let's see. Let's see. Right now, I put him as Charles Lee, right? The guy in the first duel. <laughs> I'm a general. Yeah. Wee! <laughs> You know, I mean, he's not a main character, but Sam Richardson, we saw him at a oh Thunder, gosh, Gong? Thunder Gong. Yeah. I had no idea that he was like the vocalist that he turned out to be that night. Ooh, and um, yeah, you know, I might want to change my answer for Washington to Sam Richardson because yes. I <laughs> feel like he work. would just bless all the people everywhere. That could work. Yeah. Interesting. I think... Um, Andrea had said that you would have cast George Washington as um, Cola just to keep Cola. your crushes in line. Keep all my crushes <laughs> together. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. and that's that's. I think we could put Tahib as as Jefferson and Lafayette. I think. I, yes, I think Nick. I think Nick. Well, could, Nick you could can separate that. Lafayette and Jefferson. You can. Oh, you separate them all. See, I'm looking because, like, in the the cast, they played by. 
Which, listen, the first time I watched it, I was very confused. I didn't realize Maria Reynolds was also um, the third. Sorry, I've already forgotten. Yeah, I didn't realize she was. That was the same person. Like oh. I, I, I picked it up in other areas, you know, with Philip and. Um, oh my god. Can we make that Cristo Fernandez so we can hear him try oh, to rap as a little kid? Yeah. <laughs> daddy, daddy. I cast Philip Hamilton as Cristo. Just because of the hair. Yeah. The, yes. the hair, you know. 100%. Got that hair. Yeah, I would fully agree with that. Adam Barra did have it down his neck. Have you guys seen? So, you know, they used to do those ham for ham shows. Yeah. Uh. And they recorded a lot of them on YouTube. Did you guys see the one? It was the three kings, the three guys that played the king doing the Skylar sister song. Have you? Has, that sounds amazing. I, I'll, I'm going to find that and put it in the chat. Everyone has to watch that. In fact, we should just share it from the our account. It's so good. Yep. We'll so do if that. I was going to cast the Skylar sisters just separate, just as sisters mm -hmm. in particular, rather than like in their relation to like Hamilton and whatnot then I think mm -hmm. that would be really fun to be like I don't know like uh see I'm I keep going to actor uh, to characters more than actors like I default to that but I'm thinking of putting like Isaac and Colin <laughs> and like Jan Moss oh, yeah. or something <laughs> Jan Moss no probably probably Bumbercatch Bumbercatch can play the youngest sister <laughs> oh Oh, Hashim as as Peggy. Yeah. I love it. Jeremy Swift. I feel like we're missing we're missing something yeah, crucial. Oh, Jeremy Swift would be an amazing King George. Yes. Yeah. I, wear, I, put, I put Jeremy as uh, John Lawrence, um, but it might have just been a case of I was running out of, you know, <laughs> it was getting to the point where I'd moved them about so much that because um, I thought that um, Maria Maria Reynolds would you know would be good in that role, right? Yeah. I know it's just a small role, but I just feel like she could really work that role. So yeah, she'd be a fabulous Mariah. Yeah. Or to Her. be really dramatic, why don't we put um Nick Muhammad as uh Hamilton's son? Oh that yeah, we could get some <laughs> chemistry there. Um I thought Stephen was the obvious choice for the Marquis, just to you know, for the language thing. Oh, uh Stephen Menace. Yeah. I thought that would work quite well, but I might just be a bit limiting there. What do you think in that? <laughs> well, uh, the Mar uh, the yeah, Marquis de Lafayette, um, um, uh, uh, Richard Richard. Oh, Richard. Okay, yeah. Uh, I anglicised the name there, yeah. Richard <laughs> Richard. Uh, just because they, they speak the same language, but, but wait, whoever who do we cast Brett as? Because then we could get the no one understands you, like from the first episode. <laughs> 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 yes i knew there was a reason that i was asking you to help <laughs> yeah you all yeah, you all have much stronger of a background in that theater cast <laughs> or especially yeah. i think we're saying um hercules mulligan or he could be he could be lafayette he could be he could be the king yeah i just can't see anybody other than brendan as king jo as the king I, george i think that's pretty perfect mm -hmm. lafayette i think is too showy to have for Brett, Brett be yeah. in that role. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I agree. I take that back. Yeah, 
the the, uh, the angry revolutionary soldier that just keeps kind of like popping up on stage with the like big snare drum and like killing. No, no. Brett is the bullet. <laughs> Brett is the bullet. <laughs> oh, of course. He's just like. <laughs> Walking across the stage while with growling. the eyebrows, it's got to growl the, eyebrows though, the whole it? time. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> brilliant casting, brilliant bit of casting. That's it. Nailed it. Eliza. Considering that we now know that Eliza is the Hamilton we're actually talking about here, who are we casting for Eliza? Well, I think Marissa was right. Like the aces in the places bit. Uh, but but of course that means putting Hannah in both of those roles, <laughs> so we just have to clone her. <laughs> I was going to be controversial and say sassy. Yeah, Ellie Taylor. Oh, I love. Yeah. Her. That's pretty. Yeah, you know what? Actually, I like that. I might I might switch then. I might say Hannah as Eliza, and then Ellie as Angelica. Angelica. Hmm. Hmm. I picked Sarah Niles for Eliza. Also, I thought she hmm. could carry that gravitas, you know, because there's such a, there's so much depth to Eliza in, in the sense that at first you think she's just going to be, oh, I'm in love with this guy and I'm just going to do whatever needs to be done to get him and na na na. But she is a force of nature, so yeah. I, and I, I see that and and they both do the work and straight, right? Like yeah. They, so mm, interesting. Who have I missed? Have I missed anyone? Uh, I missed uh, James Madison. <laughs> Actually, I think Jeremy Swift would be a really funny yeah. person. Yeah, you could, I think you'd be right Coffee. there. Yeah. <laughs> Coffee, yeah. a little sickly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Does he, does he retch at any point? <laughs> yeah. I know. It's like, instead of coughing, <laughs> he's got his little gag. Love it. Oh, Excellent. Well, we'll get this into rehearsals and I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> All right. Perfect. We'll be there. We're ready for the production. <laughs> I would pay money for that. <laughs> like when they did the um the Christmas Carol with uh, Jason was reading in it, right? But like the cast of Ted Lasso reading, just doing a table reading of Hamilton. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was a wonderful life. Oh, that's yeah, it. It's one of it. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I only know that because that was Marita had sent me that, and I was like, I'd never seen it. <laughs> I'd never seen it. Until that, and I watched that and then watched the, the movie. So, yeah, that's what we need, a Hamilton table read. And we've got the casting sorted. It's down. <laughs> they don't need to put the work in. We've done oh, that. Work, yeah. yeah. We're here now. <laughs> Fantastic. Make the world uh, a better place. This is what we're here for. Exactly. Excellent. This went way better than I expected. I'm so happy. I feel like I've put a lot less effort in than every single other person, <laughs> but it was fun. So what can you do? Um, excellent. What a fantastic episode and made absolutely brilliant by Brett and Marissa, guests from Richmond Till We Die, one of our favourite podcasts. Where, where can people find you, um, your socials and your podcasts? Where can we find you? Uh, Richmond Till We Die uh, is the name of the podcast. Um, we're on all of the platforms. I hope we should be. And then uh, social media, we're on there all the time. We are at Ted Lasso Pod on Twitter and Instagram. Very active on Twitter. We're around on Instagram, um, and we we love all the feedback that folks love love to share uh, as you're watching through the season. And yes, as we alluded to in this episode, our our podcasts uh, recap episodes, our discussions about episodes will start airing at the conclusion of season three. So, and oh, thank then, God, some fun interviews uh, with some cast members, with uh, other big fans of the show, and so just keep us in your feed. 
Thank you yeah. so much for having us. Yeah, you're so welcome. You. You're so welcome, and thank you for. Like you say, releasing it late because once this is over, I'm going to need all the content I can to keep this momentum because I can't think about it being over. So I really <laughs> appreciate that. Okay, everyone, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Beards Book Club or send us an email at coachbeardsbookclub at gmail.com. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Share us with your friends and family and leave a five-star review.